Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Whatever day part you're in around the world, welcome to Office Hours. It's great to have you here. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic, and we're looking forward to today. McReed of Clippin will help us understand that product. It's a cloud-based system for cataloging and managing footage. Should be a fascinating discussion, so stick around for that. But right now, it's time to dive into our questions for today. Mitch, what have we got? Thank you, Bill. Starting out with Tobias Moss in Minneapolis. Tobias asked, has anyone used Descript's new workflow for editing video and video podcasts? Can you offer a review? So far, nobody uh, appears to have here on the panel. Uh, I've heard that name over and over again. So um, I, I think you probably have to check uh, what it said on there. John Preto may have some thoughts. So, John? We, we're playing with it right now. In, ah. in, in order to, to get all the cool features, you have to pay this subscription and then you have to train it. You have to read, you have to read a bunch of paragraphs in there. But for eliminating ahs and ums and stuff like that, it's, it looks really, really powerful. I, I, uh, I'm watching it closely. So is it kind of an auto translator for taking spoken word and turning it into written text? Is that its basic function? It's a script based editor. So, oh yeah, okay. So it's a little bit like some of the other ones that are out there in terms of you write a script and and edit the script, and that in turn edits the video. Okay, Chris, what do you think? Exactly what I was going to say. Same thing. It's it's a little bit like lumberjack. Um, it's it's script based editing, so you can literally just like copy paragraphs from one side to the other, and uh, and it'll assemble it. But it also has some of the other things like what John was saying. You can erase words and stuff. Um, I haven't used it. I know a few people that use it and they swear by it. Okay. Well, so uh, it'll be interesting. Maybe we'll have uh, them on or try to figure out uh, a day that we take a closer look at it. It sounds like a fascinating concept. Let's go on to the next question for right now. Andy Kotkendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, I need to record a four-person podcast interview. Is there a mix pre with four channels of Noise Assist? Chris Fenwick. That sounds like it would be really cool, Andy. Uh, no. The way it works, uh, at least, and all I can really speak of from legitimate experience is I have a mix pre six. So the way it works is you choose which channel you want to apply the noise assist too. Now I'm using noise assist on my mic and I've picked uh, input one and applied the noise assist to that channel. But you can also take your noise assist and apply it to a bus. So you could say apply noise assist to everything on the left channel. You can then stereo pan all of your mics. And because when you hit record, you're going to get an ISO of every in into uh, individual channel, plus you're going to get the left channel, plus you're going to get the right channel all recorded all at once or anything that you've enabled. Um, you then have your four mics raw. You have your four mics mixed and noise assisted on the left. And then you have your four mics mixed, but unnoise assisted on the right. That's the way, um, uh, sound devices kind of expects you to use it when there's more than one person that you want to apply uh, noise assist to. Excellent description, Mitchell. And uh, Chris is absolutely correct. However, if you want to have multiple channels, 
of uh, uh, noise assist. I'm just violate something. Um, what you want to do is go up to the seven series or eight series. You're going to pay the privilege of it. You can uh, you can put all the versions of uh, noise assist you want on all the individual channels. It's not limited to one. So if you got a seven uh, or an eight series, uh, you can do that. And you have the option of uh, purchasing the Cedar noise assist uh, uh, plugins that are there. They'll work for those guys. Mitch, Mitch do you have do yeah. you have to rebuy it for every channel? Or, or once you purchase the noise assist, do you just have it accessible to as many channels as you can apply it to? Individual you know? licenses for individual channels for each of them. <laughs> really? That's wow. why you noted the cost Ouch. factor. Which <laughs> I just thought plus the cost the, was for the, the more advanced mixer. But Yeah, wow. plus the, the 8 is like, what, $10,000? Something close to that. Okay, so if you're at network level budget land, this may be a solution for you. For some of us, not so much, but... It's a big marketplace out there. Thank you guys for the answers that really, I'm sure, helped Andy and a lot of other folks out there. Next question. Next one in from James Haldane in Vancouver, Canada. Roland has released a new switcher with a lot of interesting features. There's a link to it. Thoughts from the panel. And we're going to start with Mitch Hill. Here comes one of the thoughts. Wow. Um, I'm, I don't have the uh, the graphic to, to put up, but uh, it's very interesting. It's everything you wanted in a uh, Zoom uh, switcher and then some. It's got uh, audio mixer built into it. It's got a switcher. It also has the ability to uh, play back stills and video clips as part of the transitions between elements. It has SDI and HDMI in it also. So that's just me looking at it for about 30 seconds. That's all I had time to. Amazing. I have no idea what the cost is, but uh, I would say that it would be a very, very cool thing to have. And the first person that gets, first person that gets one wins. Jesse Kester. Oh, boy, does this thing look good. Um, it has got a lot of features that we have been uh, very, very interested in having in a board since we started working on the um, the ATEM Mini uh, series. Um, I'm going to jump over to the website just so we can show off some of this stuff. What, what's really nice is um, the, the back of the board has uh, so many inputs, including XLR, which is uh, tremendously welcome. You got a whole row of HDMIs and a whole row of uh, SDIs and tons of output options. It looks very configurable. The thing that I'm not seeing is if it has onboard recording and beyond that if it has onboard iso recording because since we switched over to the atem iso it is almost impossible for us to leave that workflow but it looks like a fantastic board uh we'll find out the price if we can i, I haven't seen it on their website yet so there's not an MSRP, a manufactured suggested retail price, which may or may not bear any relation to reality that's been published out there. I'm surprised at that. Um, just because I've only started poking around the website. I, I imagine there might be something like that somewhere. I just haven't found it yet. Um, John we'll Carter, what are your thoughts? $6,500. Yeah. Ah, 6500 Okay. Well, that seems like a lot of mixer at that level. Uh, of course, nobody here has put it through the ringer in terms of... Uh, channel strip noise specs and everything else. So uh, there's much to be learned, but it certainly is an interesting thing. Chris Fenwick, you had more thoughts? Yeah, check this out. On the video output, you can repatch whatever signal you want to various outputs. It's It seems super configurable. Very, so it has like very a, interesting. Uh, a matrix router kind of built into it? A mini well, matrix router? Okay, so this is what I'm looking at. Let's take a look at this again. 
here he's got, they have the program. Wait a output. second, give, give him a little, they haven't, they haven't put your graphic up. Let's see if we can okay. get Chris's graphic up. Uh, okay. Jesse Kester has it. Jesse, can you follow yeah. him? And let's so see if we out can get the that program output, The program output, they have it set to one SDI, one USB-C, and one to the streamer. Okay, his sub-program, who knows what that means, that's going to a different SDI. An aux out goes to the third SDI. And, and considering the way it's drawn like this, I'm just making an assumption here, but considering the way it's drawn, it seems like it's, I mean, because it looks kind of haphazard, it seems like it's very configurable. Seems really cool. Yeah, I'd, it's I'd really interesting. It. Interesting approach. Well, they've obviously spent a lot of time <clears throat> thinking about this. Mitchell, what are your thoughts? I think I'm going to have to spend a lot more time looking, too, because every time I look, I see something new. Two USB outs and the possibility of controlling it from two different computers. I, I you know, I need to confirm that, but it, it, it seems to indicate two destinations at the very least of where you those can do that with an ATEM as well. Two, um, uh, even the extreme ISO has two USB outs. And because it's on your Ethernet network, you can control it from multiple computers. I forget that the, it can also be plugged into a uh, SSD. So there you go. And the other thing, just as a, a commentary, um, we were talking a lot about the uh, the Roland UVC02, which is the single channel device. That in itself uh, is pretty uh, game uh, changing because it's just a quick, easy way to get one channel uh, into Zoom and uh, without much uh, much problem. And I think all of this from Roland is a response to the success of Blackmagic Design and the ATEMS, because Roland's been at this a long time, probably longer than Blackmagic. So they have a lot of research and development and expertise uh, in making these things work. So I'm looking forward to see a lot of great stuff. Yeah, I imagine we'll be talking about it a good little bit here on Office Hours. Jesse Kester, your th additional thoughts? Oops, you're muted. Yes. Uh, I feel like once every two weeks or once a week, we get a question related to multiple different kinds of mixes on the ATEM, different audio mixes. And it looks like um, they've gotten ahead of that question and not only having uh, a whole bunch of video outputs, but a whole bunch of different audio mixes. And you can choose where those mixes go. So this could be a very interesting piece of equipment. Absolutely. Nigel. Yeah, someone asked about the O2. I got one of those. I have to tell you, this is a very hefty piece. Feels very solid. I plugged it in yesterday. It seems to work. I shall be experimenting with it. Good. Let us know how their quality of build is. And if they do the same thing with this new device, it may be definitely worth taking a look at. All right. Well, everybody's excited about a new piece of gear. Let's uh, put that in the back pocket and move on to the next question. Moving on to Tobias Moss from Minneapolis asking, any recommendations for a power bank that has a standard outlet on it? I want to be able to power LED lights in the field for a couple of hours, but they aren't USB-C connectable. Chris Fenwick. Uh, Tobias, there are many such products in the um, like camping, uh, overlanding sort of world. Um, what you're going to look for, I don't know what they call it, but it's a, a power, you called it a power bank. That makes me think of, you know, a USB uh, battery. These are much larger. Um more about the size of at least a lunchbox. And they're going to have USB ports and AC ports. Um, there is a term, I bet you Jason knows it, uh, like sine wave or that there, there's, a, there's certain terms that are used for like really clean power. I don't know that all of them provide that. 
and I wish I knew what it was called because then I could tell you what to look for. Yeah, it's but, sinusoidal output. Okay, so there's good and there's bad. Look for good, but they're going to be larger, and they're going to cost you. I'm going to say a minimum of like 500 bucks, maybe as much as a thousand. But there's a lot of them. Some of the nicer ones actually, besides the lunchbox, which is hefty, they also come with um, uh, like. Fold out solar panels. Let's say you're out camping. You want to be able to charge all your devices, but you don't want to plug into your car for fear of killing your automobile. That's that's what they use. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the same thing that Chris is describing, particularly in people who do RVing. There's a lot of call for people who want to do what are called, I guess, boondocking. They go out to some place that doesn't have any power and just exist and camp for a few days. And so you have to bring everything on board. And so there are, there's a lot of effort in that field of combining solar panels with large scale, larger scale batteries. I was surprised. I took apart one of the little kind of uh, regular bricks, and it turned out that it was mostly these little uh, kind of smaller than C-cell batteries in a whole series inside it under the cover. And that's kind of the typical take your extra phone charger to work with you kind of power supply. These are much bigger, as Chris indicates. And some of them last a long time, have a pretty serious charge on board to keep you working. And at the top of that, they have enough power stored in there to give you a standard Edison-style output, hopefully rectified and all filtered and nice so it doesn't mess with your equipment. So it's an interesting space for those of us who have to work remotely in the field and maybe need to take gear and lights out there. Something to look at. Next question. Next question coming in from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Much time and effort are put into lower thirds. Do you have a general practice for placements other than lower thirds so it won't affect the YouTube CC? Chris will start us off again. Uh, Jack, I'll tell you what I do. Um, And I've done this for Twitter. I've done it for um, Instagram. Is I'll take freeze frames of their user interface uh, with a piece of video in it. And then what I do is I make an overlay that has all of their little things. Some like Twitter has a little clock and whatnot. And I'll just, I'll put those into my graphics package as I'm composing. And then that way I can make sure that any additional graphics that I lay on don't interfere with what's there. Of course, the other approach to take is to just say, I'm making a great looking video and I don't care how you screw it up. Mitchell. Uh, Chris is exactly right, and I agree 100%. Uh, by the way, that stuff that's on there, uh, Alex calls that debris. So we want to work around the debris. There you go. All right. Hopefully that helped you, Jack. Let's move on to the next question. Nigel DeSalle from uh, Austin, Texas asking, is there a Q&A engine in Zoom, and how do you access it? Uh, let's go to Nigel and find out. Nigel. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm not talking about Makana. I'm not trying to pass this to myself. I've heard a lot of talk in the last few weeks that there is a separate Q&A engine outside Makana and Commander and all of those things, but I can't seem to find it. And I wonder whether it's specified somewhere and I just haven't found it. Uh, Chris Fenwick, you got any help for him? So, Nigel, traditionally, it was only in webinars that there was a Q&A uh, that we used to use back in the day here. Uh, it, I understand it has been added to meetings or possibly is about to be added to meetings. It's possible it's something you have to turn on in the back end. I haven't actually looked into it because I wasn't really that interested, but I did hear the same rumors. 
Yeah, we just did a show on uh, Zoom, had the Zoom team in, and uh, I think they mentioned that. So you might want to go back and look at that show from just a few days ago. Uh, let's go to, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, let's say that was Nigel and Chris. So we're going to the next question. Javier Alfaro from Mexico City, Mexico asks, what do you use to clean the screen on your phone, tablet, laptop, etc.? I use a product called Whoosh because I seldom use it in an Apple store to clean their products. Jason. You know, I wonder how much um, of Apple's or of Whoosh's product um, usage is because somebody's watched it done in an Apple store. Um, I, too, use Whoosh, and it's because I'm cooler than Apple and had it before they did. Um, <laughs> no, no, but um, keep in mind, it's also safe for the most part to use Windex, and here's the key. There's if and only if you put it on the cloth and not on the screen. Don't spray it directly on the screen. Put the laptop down directly so that nothing, and I mean nothing, can get into that little bezel spot. And then if you wipe it going one way and then wipe it going the other way, it should be pretty free from uh, any any um, junk, schmutz, whatever you want. Jason, do you know if there's any preclusion about whether the, the product has ammonia in it or not? Does that affect any of the plastic or the, the things on screen? Bush has neither uh, alcohol nor ammonia. Okay, and so, but if you're um, using Apple Windex. got into some trouble. Well, Apple mm. got into some trouble, right? They had this this issue with screen peelings, and um, that has, yeah, Wish has been tested, and no, it doesn't cause that. Okay, Mitchell, you had you you had a product to hold up. I was saying that this portion of Office Hours is brought to you by <laughs> Glass Plus, which is ammonia free, and get that fresh, streak free shine on your monitor. Oh, yeah, dear. ammonia is bad for the coatings on your screen, and you definitely don't want that uh, on there. Uh, the best thing to use is uh, just uh, warm, soapy water with a little isopropyl uh, alcohol in it. But as uh, Jason suggested, do not apply it directly to the screen, or you're going to have big problems. You mess things up, Mitch. Now everybody's going to want product placement on this show, and that will mess things up totally anyway. All right, moving on to the next question. Moving on to Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Do you have advice for producing a successful and compelling video podcast? Thanks. Chris is going to help us, and then Jesse. Uh, Andy, I've done a little bit about this, and I'll tell you the same thing I tell everybody that asks me about producing a podcast. This is what I would recommend you do. And, and this doesn't matter if you're doing an audio podcast or a video podcast. The number one thing that, in my opinion, that you want to do when you're producing a show is you have to realize that for some reason, podcasting more so than other shows, you're, you're developing a very intimate relationship with your audience. And like any good friend, um, if you show up on their doorstop, doorstep and you want to talk to them, if they're not home, you're very disappointed. So it's the same thing when you set a release schedule for your show. In my opinion, it's more important to have a consistently released show than it is to have a good show. Now, the content should be good, but it doesn't have to be fancy. A lot of times people in the production world will put a lot of um, effort into, oh, I'm going to make these lower thirds just right. I'm, we're going to get the lighting perfect because it's the one time that I get to control something and I don't have to deal with my client. I can make it perfect. What you're going to find is that the audience cares more that you are there than that you are there and you look perfect or, you know, the lower thirds or network quality. Just pick a schedule that you want to release, I would say once a week, 
and stick to it. And so what you have to do is you have to budget your time, look at how much time you could put into producing this show. And if you're like most podcasts, you're probably not making any money, at least in the beginning. So you have to use your available time. And then you gauge your production level based on the amount of time that you can actually apply to it. The last podcast that I produced, <laughs> I, I had very little time to put into it. And I put maybe two hours a week into it. There was about an hour or 30 minutes into finding a guest to talk to. I wasn't very good at it. And then I would record the show for about 45 minutes. And within a half hour, it was posted on YouTube. And I was uh, not YouTube, but um, uh, iTunes, uh, however you do all that. I can't remember now. Um, And I was done with it. I was like, okay, now I have to go to work to actually make money because I never made any money, per se, off the podcast. There you go. Uh, Jesse Kester. Yes, uh, iteration is absolutely a key to success here. And that uh, doesn't just go for, I'm I'm agreeing with the release regularly. And that leads to a system of iteration where you improve it week by week and episode by episode. I can't give you too much advice on how to make a successful podcast, but I can tell you how to guarantee a failure. Um, junky audio will reduce your audience to nothing immediately. People have options. They have no reason to tune into another Zoom call right now. So make sure your audio sounds better than a laptop microphone or a cell phone. Um, what was the other thought? Uh, was the video, uh, remember that you can break format with video with a podcast. So a lot of people think that if you're doing a video podcast, it should be cut like a television program where you have one head up and then you cut to camera B, camera C. Um, you can have two heads side by side with a podcast or four screens up to watch people reacting to each other in real time. And, um, the, the last thing I'll say is that you should go back to a thought on what need podcasts fill and i'm not talking about any one specific genre or topic on your podcast i'm talking about the human need that they fill and it's very different from other kinds of entertainment when you're when you're tuning into a podcast i think it's more like um sitting down to a meal with people that you really respect than it is uh, looking for escapism that you might get through other modes of entertainment, like a feature film or something like that. So just remember that you're you're uh, servicing a different biological need than um, than other forms of entertainment, and build your content around around those needs as you can best understand them. And uh, oh, who was next? Nigel was next. There you go. Yeah. So don't let great get in the way of the good here. Um, start, enjoy, play. Where you start is not where you end up. I mean, Joe Rogan didn't end up, start with the podcast he has today. It took years, lots of things changed. Whatever you do, have fun and do it. Let it go where it goes. If you don't get 10,000 people watching on day one, don't give up. I'm willing to bet where you start is not where you'll end up. But if you don't start the journey, journey, you'll never know. And don't let the perfection sometimes of office hours get in the way of getting something out. Uh, Chris Fenwick had a last thought. Last thought. Uh, Nigel, I love what you said about having fun. Fun is infectious. And pe- and again, that relationship I mentioned, people come for that fun. So yes, you should have fun with it. Uh, it's, it's, it's really frustrating when you watch somebody like getting angry on the air because something isn't going well. It's like, oh, that's just an audience killer. Next question. 
Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York, asking, send a ticket to Zoom as I'm not getting 1080p in an enabled meeting. They mentioned that the person sending 1080 HD also needs to be in full screen view and looking at speaker view. Do you agree with this? We talk a ton about Zoom here, and we have a lot of people who know a lot about it. So, Jason, uh, help us. Okay, so if you're certain that all the prerequisites, by the way, I'm going to read this directly from Mickey because my answer was good and his is better. If you're certain that all prerequisites for transmitting and receiving a 1080p is met, have the 1080p contributor toggle the HD checkbox and the client's preferences off and then on again. Um, He said that the past few months updates of the client have been very buggy and sometimes that needs to be switched. Oh, there's a great behind the scenes tip. Chris Fenwick, you want to add something? Yeah, that's very good. No, the the other the the sender, what is happening on their screen being in full full that has nothing to do with your ability to receive it. Now, you what does have to happen is and, and this is a good uh frame of re- reference to keep in mind. Zoom uses a ton of data and they are going to do everything they can to minimize the flow of data that has to go across their network. Therefore, if you have a 1080 account, but every window on your screen is small, they're not going to send you 1080. They're not going to bother because it's wasted on, on the small display. If I can actually see it on my display, when I pull the window out bigger, 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 all of a sudden it'll go pop. Oh, there's the 1080. Um, that's one thing I wanted to say. Oh, and just because Zoom says they've bestowed upon you 1080, you still have to go into the back end and check it from 720 to 1080. Uh, again, they're trying not to send a whole lot of data. I know the Zoom folks would hate me saying that out loud. We love you guys, but it makes sense because if everybody in the world on Zoom was always using 1080, I think it would break the internet. There you go. Let's go to the next question. Next one in for Douglas Carmichael. I finally ordered an M2 Pro Mac Mini, 32 gigabyte RAM, 4 terabyte SSD, and I'm looking at the OWC Mini Stack STX for storage. However, reviews have said it is low transfer speed, 770 megabytes per second for the SSD and 150 megabits per second for the HDD hard drive. Would that be enough for audio? Jason Bache. First, congratulations on finally buying another Mac. Thank you and congratulations. Um, Well, let's just go with the it depends and compared to what. I'll call your attention to the link in Mukana, which is from a non-tech, and um, it states and then tests the, um, the T5, which many of us at office hours have used for uninterrupted 6K recording a video in RAW without incident, um, that drive does 550 megabytes per second. So 770 is slow compared to what? Compared to Thunderbolt? Yeah, I guess it's slow compared to Thunderbolt. But honestly, for audio, I think it'll be all right. Chris Fenwick. So, Douglas, you're doing something that I've seen people do um, uh, for decades. Oftentimes in this business, we get so uh, gear frantic. There's another word I was going to use, clean show. We get so excited about the gear that we obsess over the numbers and the stuff and the 
and the things. And quite frankly, most of the time, it is my experience, I watch this happen most of the time, you listen to it going, just make your show. You're going to be fine. You're good. Uh, a, a good friend of mine contacted me a while ago and he said, so I'm, I'm looking at the videos that I'm uploading to YouTube and it seems to be that there's a slight green shift between the quick time that's on my desktop and what I'm seeing on the internet. And I looked at him, I said, dude, you're watching video. It's on the internet. It's in color and it moves. Relax, be excited, move on to the next thing. Always good advice. Next question. Tobias Moss from Minneapolis here to ask, has anyone accessed the improvements of the OWL 3 versus the older OWL Meeting Pro? Anyone have a recommendation for a better 360-degree speaker-finding camera? We use the OWL to auto-switch who is on the frame and a better separate mic for audio capture. I have no experience with that, but I'm fascinated with it. So there's a 360-degree speaker-finding camera. I mean, we've seen systems out there, and they're getting better and better all the time of auto-tracking of people. But if that's in a 360-degree format, I'm fascinated. And hopefully, we can get the folks behind Al on the show to give us more uh information about the technology they're using to do that. I did watch something the other day that was really interesting about, uh, well, I think it was our own Jeffrey Powers who was talking about shooting everything at the latest uh, CES with 360 and then cutting uh, both the shot for the audience and the shot of him as the interviewing out of those 360 frames and de-warping them or whatever he had to do them. So it became like an AB roll system. I was fascinated by that. This sounds like it's something that might do the same thing. Nigel, you had a thought? Uh, yes. By the way, I was thinking the same thing about uh, what you were just talking about in terms of, of that 360 camera and what he did and how clever that was. That's That really stuck with me. I don't know this particular device. I didn't get to research it enough in time, but I know Microsoft used to have one that was put on the middle of the table with a bunch of mirrors. And I saw a number of them go into offices and then I never saw them again. So <laughs> I don't know whether that says something about the device or teams, but, but uh, my guess is they weren't very successful. That's interesting. So they had something in a conference table that had a, a 360 camera and then mirrors to show individual shots? Yeah, and theoretically in Teams, when you became the active speaker, it should cut to you and it was mirrors. and You can just imagine... I can imagine. Oh, man. Oh, man. That's a little Rube Goldberg for my money. Hopefully they've made that a little more uh, uh, sophisticated. Let's go on to the next question. From Justin James in Phoenix, Arizona, was testing Zoom ISO for screen share capture and the Zoom ISO client only showed a black screen saying participant has started sharing screen. Any ideas how to get Zoom ISO to show the shared screen when this happens? Chris Fenwick's going to help us out. Just had this problem the other day, and our friend Jonas Dattel in uh, Germany pointed out. So um, sometimes it doesn't work as advertised. Uh, what you need to do in the there's the column where it says like the type of feed, and by default it says participant. First thing you need to do is on one of your outputs you have to select screen share. That output, in theory, then will feed the screen share. And what you're seeing is you're getting a black signal. So what you want to do is you want to go into the Zoom settings on the Zoom ISO Zoom client. And under screen settings, a screen sharing, um, there's three radio buttons. And you want to click the one that's on the far right. I can't remember what it's called. Sorry, uh, visual. Um, the far right one. 
Also, you may find that if you change the screen share output to a different output, um, it will all of a sudden start to work. But yes, sometimes it does show black. Uh, I was having trouble with this, early, uh, what day is today, Thursday, earlier this week, um, was able to get it to work about half the time. And then I had a, a, a sort of emergency recording I had to do. And I followed all the instructions that Jonas gave me and I got it to work uh, just fine. So uh, I'm just going to call it a bug. It, it's not working perfect. It will work. Po keep poking around at it. I'm interested, Chris, what was the first thing Jonas told you to do? Was there full reboots or did he just send you in the direction of individual controls? Do you remember how he helped you solve that problem? Uh, sorry, my, 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 my lady and my computer started talking to me. I think I heard most of that. The, but the button you need to hit under the zoom preferences, let me show you like this. There's a window I'm supposed to not show to the public. It's this one. Hey, that's me. So um, uh, under screen sharing or share screen, you want to make sure maintain. Yeah, we're still still seeing you. Other, we're not seeing your your screen yet. If you wanted to point it out. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Uh, I would have to change a bunch of stuff. Sorry. Yeah, um, that's all right. Just describe. But it's or. called it's called maintain current size under the screen share um, set, uh, tab in, in Zoom. That's the main thing. And then the other thing that I found was that. By switching it to say output four or possibly output one, all of a sudden it would start to work. It's a little buggy, um, but the fact that it works. So what you'll end up seeing is you'll have Chris Fenwick and Chris Fenwick, but one of them is selected as participant, which means it'd be my face, and the other one is selected as screen share, so it will grab Chris Fenwick's screen share. Interesting. You can also only have one person at a time sharing a screen, obviously. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of circumstances where something didn't work and you just switch away from it and you switch back to it. And for some reason, the logic kind of solves its problem and it gets It's there. a good troubleshooting principle to take. Sometimes just looking at it and saying, well, the button is checked. Uncheck it, recheck it. Same thing happens with the OBS on the Mac. I'll, I'll open up a what was a camera source and it's selected. And I was like, huh. So I change it to a different input, change it back. Oh, now it start working. Yeah, I've had the same experience. Yeah, that's what we <laughs> call jiggle the handle. It's just that, just one step short of the kinetic adjustment. <laughs> you tap it and hope that the bad connection a, gets good. We again. call that a, a Fonzie slap. Fonzie slap. There you go. All right, let's move on to the next question. Next question coming in from Ronnie Hofsoy in Tromso, Norway. New fly pack in the build. What is the fine difference between the ATEM2ME and the 4ME Constellation HD besides the extra ins and outs, MADI audio, and the extra super source and DVEs? What is the practical need for 4ME versus a 2ME? I think the answer to this is two extra mix effects buses. I think that's the point between a 2ME and a 4ME is one has two buses dedicated uh, to being able to do mix effects and the other one has four. I, I can't think of anything beyond that. I am not a Constellation user, so I don't have direct experience with that. But I think uh, that is a capability Alex talks about a lot in terms of the ability to move into larger shows and still do the kind of uh, composites that mix effect buses allow you to do and then switch to those composites from 
regular video input channels. That seems to me to be kind of what's happening there. Uh, hopefully, that was uh, satisfying enough. But Ronnie, if you want more, uh, sneak around when Alex is here. He knows this stuff really, really well. Uh, thanks for that question. Let's move on to the next one. From David Paskin in Miami, Florida, if I unlink a user with their own pro plan from a Zoom uh, Zoom org, uh, will they retain their pro plan? Mm, that, I wish we had our Zoom friends here. That would be something they could tell you specifically. Uh, they, they It should be specified in their terms of service, and I know it's sometimes hard to find that, but most of those services like Zoom will have on their website uh, most of the details that you're looking for in terms of specifically what are you allowed to do under the various plans. Um, and I think that's probably the only way you can get a, a, a authoritative answer to that, uh, unless we have somebody on the panel who uses that feature of the Zoom plan. Uh, so David, sorry, you'll be here in the next couple of days. Uh, let's Let's bring it back again sometimes when you can get a closer answer than that. Next question. Next one in from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Is there any way to detach my Zoom OSC Pro license from my Zoom ISO Pro? I want to use the Zoom OSC Pro in a main meeting with the participants and the Zoom OSC Basic in the breakout room Zoom ISO would live. Jason's going to help us here. Jason? I'm pretty sure you can disconnect it. And um, if you need to split it, which is actually what I think, if I'm reading your question correctly, you're actually after. I would email them, and I think you'll get a pretty fast response. But but to my knowledge, you should be able to sign out of one and then into the other instantaneously. Like, you know, give it a second and you're good. Nice. Okay. Hopefully that'll work for you, Scott. Uh, let us know. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, what sort of external control support do the Roland switchers have? Would there be anything as robust as Mix Effect? Mitch, start us off. Mix Effect is a great uh, program. First, just let me explain what it does. It's a, a Swiss Army knife uh, remote control for your ATEM that allows you to build super sources and remote controlled various aspects of your ATEM to the point where you could probably put Mix Effects into your Stream Deck and do everything from it. As of yet, I have seen no uh, uh, response uh, or um, announcements from Adam Tao over at Mix, Mix Effects. So the answer to your question is no, I don't think so. And yes, wouldn't it be cool if they did that? And the question is whether or not Roland provides an SDK that would allow that to happen. Uh, Jason Beish. Hmm. Uh, let me see here. Nope. Not even a little bit, like not even close, like in no world, no way, shape or form. I uh, put in the Mukana chat the PDF for their only actual external control app, and I'll let you be the judge, but let me uh, save you some time. Nope. <laughs> okay, there's a pretty definitive answer. Chris Vanwick, do you want to take issue or you want to support that? I just want to make sure I understand, Jason, accurately. You're saying no? Is that what you're saying? I, no, believe, um, I believe it was the opposite of yes. That is what I said. So here's the problem with the Roland switcher just in general. I mean, it could be great. It could be amazing. It could be awesome. But Blackmagic is so far ahead of them in terms of um, people joining, you know, joining ship, uh, uh, getting on board that um, it would be really, really difficult for, for somebody to say, oh, wow, this is this thing. I mean, if you look back just historically, go back uh, 
40 years, um, VHS versus Beta. Even though the Betamax was way better, there was such a groundswell of people buying VHS machines that everybody just had the bad one. Um, and, and I'm not saying black magic is bad. It might sound like I'm saying that. I'm not. Um, although some people don't like it. Uh, but they are so far out ahead that there's just this groundswell of third-party people developing things for it, um, which then in turn just makes it better. So Black Magic would have to hit it out of the park many times before they got all of the developers to take notice and say, hey, let's go work with this thing. Oh, I think you meant Roland had, would have to hit it out of the park to Clearly, meet. that's what I meant. I don't know why you thought I meant anything else, though. Of course. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's an ecosystem is what I'm hearing from Chris. And I have to admit, we've been talking about that for a long time. The Blackmagic ecosystem has become so strong in the last two years that it's going to be more difficult. But competition is always a good thing. Let's hope that other products come along and push everybody. Nigel has some thoughts on this. Nigel? Yeah, you took the word right out of my mouth. This is an ecosystem question. You will always find a point solution that is better than the combination of the ecosystem. You will always find the ecosystem is better than the point solution, a set of point solutions brought together. So yeah, what we use are ecosystems. That makes sense. Uh, Mitchell Hill. Yeah, I'd like ecosystems. That's a great word to describe it. Um, couldn't isn't there in some multiverse uh, universe the possibility that Roland could say, oh, we're going to release an SDK so you can control it like mix effect? It'd be a smart move on their part. And hint, hint, maybe they should get in touch with Adam Tao over at mix effect. There you go. We're about to move to the next question. We do have a couple of slots open. So if you have other questions for today, for general, before our guest comes in at the top of the hour, pop, toss them in there. It'd be a great time to get your uh, needs met here on Office Hours. Next question. Harshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, and right here on our panel, uh, asking TV shows in the past have changed their actors to portray a character. However, in animated media with voiceover actors running the show, how would a change in voices for the characters impact you? Ooh, fascinating question. This is the multiple Darren's question. Uh, Javier, take it away. Well, for me, it's extremely distracting. Even when an actor has like a cold or, or something, I can't, I, I, I really notice it. But I have two examples that happened here in Mexico. When I was a kid, uh, all of the cartoons that we saw here were dubbed in, in Mexico. So uh, with long form anime like Dragon Ball Z or uh, Knights of the Zodiac, like there are like 300 chapters for a series, uh, they switched characters a, a lot. Uh, I, I worked in dubbing and it was like, yeah, I did uh, 10 episodes of this character and five episodes of this other character. And when someone couldn't make their call, someone else like tried to like impersonate them, you know, like try to get us close at it. And people didn't notice, no one noticed it. Uh, but a very different thing happened with The Simpsons. It was a super hit show in Mexico in the 90s. Um, the dubbing in Mexico was excellent. I, I only uh, listened to it dubbed like for the first 10 seasons. And then after I think season 10 or 11, the studios were, uh, the actors were asking for more money because it was a great show and it was like one of the top shows in the prime spot in, in Mexico, even though uh, a lot of people were not like not getting like the US uh, humor, but like most of the, it was like so well done that he has like the essence of the original show, but with some different twists that really resonated with the Mexican audience. And when the actors asked for more money, uh, the studio were like, no, that's it. That's the, what are you getting? And they were like, okay, we're gonna walk. 
and the studio was like okay walk and uh they changed the whole uh the whole cast i think like maybe one or two just like the secondary you stayed and the people like the audience left in droves like people start we started looking for uh, how to get the dvds with the original audio and started listening in english o obviously like the new kids that never listened to the original were like for me, it's fine. There's no worries. But all of the all, all of the these uh, '90s kids that we were like super invested, we switched to English and never looked back. And then, like maybe five years ago or something like that, they came back. That the original dubbing actors uh, they win at the end. So they like they are redubbing a lot of the stuff that they make without them. So it's like two very different cases. The Simpsons cost like a howl, and then the long form anime, no one noticed. Javier, that was a fabulous story. I learned a lot and it was really outstanding. Nigel, what, do you, what are your thoughts? I worked for a radio station where we changed the jingles and people called in and complained and said they were never going to listen to the radio station again. I was young and inexperienced. The program manager said to me, don't worry, in three days they won't remember what the old one sounded like. So that, that was an important lesson. I, I think... Um, you will definitely notice the change, particularly if it's in something you're very connected to. Now, you may have better audio than audio skills than the rest of us because, you know, your audio skills may be, uh, have been heightened. And so it may be more sensitive to you. I think after a couple of days or a couple of times, you probably won't remember. I think when they change the actor in your favorite program, depending on the quality of the program, sometimes you're willing to accept it. And sometimes it's just the reason you needed not to accept it anymore. And I think an example of that, at least for me, was we were watching House of Dragons. And if you've watched House of Dragons, between episode five and six, they change all the female leads. So if I'm spoiling it for you, I'm sorry. So, and it's like, uh, we couldn't get over it. Just couldn't, it's, I know, I'm on a rant, I apologize, not bitter at all. But we just, we couldn't get it because one of them was okay, the other one was a completely different character and there was no explanation and I think they were just trying to jump the storyline forward, but it was completely jarring. And so, to me, it depends on, on, on not only who, but the quality of the content you're watching. That's a fascinating perspective, thank you, perspective. Uh, Mitch Hill. Uh, first off, Harshid, thanks for the question, because I think it's a good one for a lot of reasons, because we don't always see the character, we hear them, and we form emotional attachments to them. And we're very, very sensitive to the subtleties of their presentation. When Kevin Conroy, the voice of the animated Batman, pa passed away, uh, a number of the actors just said, I'm not going to do the show anymore. Uh, Mark Hamill said that he's not going to do the Joker anymore because Kevin was such a part of that animation. So you can see where those kind of emotional attachments um, would affect people. I'm not even going to get into the bewitched uh, Darren thing because that was just plain weird. But uh, the other example of a uh, of an actor, voice actor, heard but not seen would be the robot on the Lost in Space. That robot had a lot of personality, and uh, our friend Dick Tufeld brought quite a bit of uh, you know warning, Will Robinson. And the way he talked, it was so very specific and distinct that when they did the first Lost in Space movie, um, they were using another actor or affected voice. And there was so much pushback from the uh, tests that they ran that they, br they brought uh, Mr. Tufeld back out to do the voice of the robot. And it just fit. It fit. It made sense. So that's, that's the thing. It's, a, it's maybe some of these 
uh, parts need to be retired when the actor is no longer available to do them. Chris, your thoughts? It's interesting. We're, we're kind of revisiting a theme from earlier about having that emotional attachment to somebody. Um, also, Javier, great anecdote about the Simpsons in, in, in Mexico. Uh, I will definitely remember that one. I also want to point out, and this isn't just voice actors, this is about replacing people. Um, there is a, mo- a three-part movie trilogy that was made for the, um, the book Atlas Shrugged. And they cast the movie, part one, they shot the movie, and it was considered to be so awful that the entire cast quit. They wouldn't do parts two and part three. They knew it was a trilogy. Second part came on, they just had all new people. And like the whole time you go, wait a second, who's this person? I can't, you know, you had to figure it out. I mean, it, I enjoyed watching it because I wasn't about to read Atlas Shrugged. That's too many words for me, but uh, it was, they just hated it so bad. They, the whole cast quit. Unbelievable. Well, this has been, I think, one of the more interesting threads we've done in a while because there's so much depth to it. Uh, you know, being a voice talent myself and having done it for 35, 40 years now, um, it's always interesting about this idea of identification. Uh, you know, we've had great voice talents. Uh, some of them have been replaceable by necessity. Uh, I'm thinking of people uh, like Mel Blanc, who did so many cartoon characters in the early days. And then later on, to keep those characters alive, they had to find people who could replace them and do almost a mimic of what Mel Blanc did originally. Uh, But we've also seen those circumstances where a replacement failed to connect with the audience. And I think there's something very specific about listening to, to people in your head perform a character. Sometimes they are really tied together. Sometimes they can be replaced. And it's kind of a, a piece by piece call on it. Mitch, you had a last thought before we move on? Yeah, I, I think that that Mel Blank uh, example is great because uh, Mel's son, uh, I forget his first name, uh, tried to do the Bugs Bunny character and it just didn't come across. But it did come from another source, a guy named Billy West, uh, who you might have heard on the Howard Stern show doing voices. Uh, he nails it. So if you're, if, if you're very lucky, you can get somebody that's studied it enough to be able to do the character voice. Yeah, it was interesting. I was at NAB and there was actually a a panel with voice performers and they were talking about a woman who uh, was trying to be cast to fit a role. And they went through like 200 people until they found her and she had the ability to do it very similar to that iconic character that that was retiring or something had happened to. So, yeah, Yeah, there was a there was a movie that uh, they they were doing uh, the relooping the voice for Richard Nixon. And they brought Rich Little in to do the voice, and nobody knew. There you go. So, next question. That was fascinating. Douglas Carmichael asking, in an article about the evolving role of the DJ in the sports world, it mentioned the DJ creating mashups in real time to follow the action of the game. Wouldn't creating mashups or even custom tracks take a significant amount of studio work? Uh, Jason Bache. Well, you're talking about an entire decade of my life. Uh, in a former life, I had 2 million plus views and and streamed every single night live doing this kind of work. And I I can say straight away, no, it actually doesn't take a lot of studio work. I always thought of mixing as more like percussion. So if you are obsessed with music, you will find things, you will loop them, you will isolate them, and then you'll uh, quantize them. 
at that point, it really is just like putting in and out tracks and fading it until you just decide that it sounds right. And that takes almost no studio time. Interesting. Thank you for the insight. Let's go on to the next question. From Tobias in uh, Tobias Moss in Minneapolis, what recommendations do you have for a $50 to $200 internal battery-powered LED lights? I love the PavoTube 6Cs, but wonder if any cousins, small floodlights, colored accent lights, string lights? Mitch, start us off. I... Um, I, I like the uh, the nan lights, I have uh, I have a very expensive uh, light panel up here for my key light, but I use nan lights everywhere else, and they are they are battery powered, and they come in all sizes, including the small one that I have behind the uh, door there to get a little splash of blue, which by the way Chris Fenwick uh, made me do, and um, they work great. They they're battery powered, and um, they also can operate off the same uh, remote control. This is like a twenty dollar remote, so nan light, that's the ticket. Jason Bache. I did some commercial work with um, a really great wakeboarder named Austin Keen for LoomCube and have since kind of fallen in love with their products. That, was, I guess, was years ago. They've since come out with version 2.0. What's great about these is they are a cubic inch. They're tiny, and they are waterproof. So you can go scuba diving with them, and they actually have a um, an underwater mode, which will allow the light to get brighter, but of course you only want to use it with, um, you know, when it's submerged in water, because if not, um, yeah, you might, might have a few problems. Oh, there's Fenwick has one. See, I'm not the only one, but yes, um, take a look at Loom Cube. They're a little pricey, but they're pretty cool. Uh, I think Chris was just holding it up and I don't think we saw it, but let's, uh, Javier, while you're talking, oh, let's see if we can get a shot of one of them. I, it looks like Chris has one and Mitch has one. Javier, go ahead. Uh, for accent lights, I really like this one, the Hugo. It is, uh, it's from the, like, uh, you can control it in HomeKit or with Alexa or with any of the smart things. And uh, it has, like, different colors and it can be um, powered, like, directly plugged in. And it has, like, a battery. So if you unplug it, it stays on for, like, four hours to eight hours, depending on the level. So for little accents of color, I really like those. Hopefully, you got some choices here, Tobias. Uh, let's go on to the next question. From T.J. Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, if you were to embed a live YouTube stream in a web page, kind of like Office Hours Global does, are the views from the web page counted in the concurrent views or are they counted separately? Jason, help us out. That's a great question. And um, we're going to go with it depends. Google uses a unique ID. Anytime you sign in on any device, it kind of flags it with the metadata that is sent back to Google. If you are signed in, and from the IP address, well, from the same IP address, it doesn't matter how many links um, you open, how many tabs, how many computers, if they're all signed in with that device and are transmitting back the same, um, the same little snippet of unique ID, that would count as concurrent. If you don't, if you're using a, a VPN in from, let's say, your cellular phone, right? You're on your smartphone and you've turned off Wi-Fi and you're using cellular data, different IP address, and you are not signed in to the same account, then um, that would show up as a separate feed. Nice. Thank you for TJ. And let's move on to the next question. Tobias Moss in Minneapolis asking, where would you place a single field recorder style microphone to record the sound of a New Orleans style band performing on an elevated stage with a boisterous audience in attendance? The horns are unamplified, but the vocals and my tenor banjo are. 
Oh, interesting. Jesse Kester, give us some thoughts. You have really painted us into a corner with this question because what you're describing is um, pretty much every frequency coming from every direction in an environment like that. So if I had to do it with one microphone, I would put it, you know, maybe 10 feet back from the stage 15, where the, the ideal place in the actual audience would be to hear the sound. I'm not sure the size of the venue, but I'm imagining like a, you know, 50 to 100 people. Um, if at all possible, if at all possible, I would recommend uh, bumping up your field recorder just a little bit to something that has the onboard mic, but also has XLR ends. And if you can get clean XLRs from the boards, from the board, or perhaps from one of the monitors in the venue, you're going to have so much more flexibility in post-production on that than a single microphone. But that that single microphone in an environment like that would be, I imagine, for review purposes only for the band to listen to the performance and see where they could be making improvements on on their performance and not something that you could release to the public. Mitchell. Yeah, I would go with a, uh, if it had to be a single mic, I would go with a stereo MS mic that has internal capsules to allow you to uh, to record the event. And then in post, you can actually steer the stereo image a little bit. I forget the name of the unit. Uh, if Mickey could uh, yell at me and tell me what it is, I could uh, pass it on to you. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. There are people who are like band recordists. This this came out of, I think, the Grateful Dead era and stuff like that. People who just love to go capture live shows. And I see most of the, the most sophisticated of them using either coincident stereo pairs or maybe X, Y arrays, sometimes something more sophisticated. They tend to go into the front third of the audience and then up high. And I think the up high maybe helps them suppress a little bit of the audience around the mic. One of the worst problems you run into about trying to record live music is that if your microphone is 10 rows back and there are noisy people chattering around you, just the inverse square law means that that chatter will be as present, sometimes more so than the band itself. So that's, I think, the reason they tend to elevate on 10, 15 foot stands up for those kind of recordings. I'm not an expert at that, but those are my thoughts. Chris, you had some more st stuff to talk about here? Yeah, the Grateful Dead tapers. That's what they called themselves. That's <clears throat> they were famous. You could get you could probably find a recording of any Grateful Dead show ever. Uh yeah. and um yeah, and what I was gonna say is it's pretty simple if you think about it. Walk around, find the spot that sounds good, put your mics there. There you go. Next question, probably the last one before we move on to our guest. Uh, from Douglas Carmichael, Douglas asks, what would the panel recommend for a small 8 to 12 port managed 10 gigabyte switch? I'd want to have a uh, SSH command line interface and a serial console port. Jason, help us out here. Okay, uh, first off, any real serious switch is always base 8, not base 4, so that range doesn't really make sense. I'll give it to you on the lower end. Um, I have had pretty good luck with Ubiquiti's 10 gigabit Ethernet 8-port um, switch. The um, command line isn't amazing, and you may or may not find the, um, the syntax to be annoying. We'll leave it at that. But, um, yeah, it works. So for those of you who have helped us out with our first hour questions, we want to thank everybody. Thank all the people who put questions into the system and also uh, – 
all of the panelists for those great answers over the course of that. It is essentially the top of the hour now, which means we get the privilege of switching over for our special guest. We're excited to have Mick Reed here, the CEO of Clippin, as our second hour guest today. And for those of you who might want to look up Clippin, it's C-L-I-P-P-N. So spell it right if you want to search it. Uh, we welcome you to Office Hours. Great to have you here. Glad to be here. Excellent. So can you start us off by just telling the audience, what is Clippin? How do you describe it to people maybe unfamiliar with the services you provide? Sure. We do a few things and uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little of the backstory, which uh, might be interesting, but we do a few things. Uh, one of them is we are a stock footage aggregator, meaning that people, videographers, um, professionals, aspiring professionals shoot video um, we give them a dashboard to give them ideas. They upload the footage to us, and then we slice and dice it. We curate it. We clip it. And then most importantly, um, we tag it, and then we deliver it to the stock footage sites like uh, Getty Images, for example, for so monetization. You're, so you're a source for them. How does the rest of you just mentioned monetization. How does that work? Yeah. So when so in this model. Um, when we deliver the footage um, to a stock footage distributor um, or an agency, sometimes they're called, and uh, when it sells, then we split the revenue 50-50 with the uh, content owner. They always own the content. We're essentially just a middleman for it, but we make it easier for them to do it um, because video. we've learned that videographers uh, may be very good at shooting. They love to shoot, but when it comes to actually editing um and then clipping and curating and you know even submitting it and there are a lot of friction points in the whole process and it takes a whole different level of expertise it's not really editing it's really clipping um so that's why we started the company about 10 years ago but in order to do that you can imagine we need to really build a streamlined workflow super efficient so we were um, the first company, according to AWS, to put a, a, a real broadcast level MAM, media asset management system, into the cloud. And this is about seven, seven, eight years ago now. And why we did that was because we never wanted to leave the cloud. So the footage goes up into the cloud and everything we do from editing um, to the tagging to distribution actually happens in the cloud, super efficient, super streamlined, um, you know, and lower cost for us to start up. But then we realized, well, we built this really cool platform. What else can we do with it? So the other two business models that we have um, are virtual post-production um, for news um, organizations. Picture, you know, one client has about five, 600 videographers around the world. They upload their footage to Clip-In and then we um, edit it maybe create b-roll montages pull out single clips put the raws together we tag it and then we send it to multiple locations we send it back to their broadcast to their digital platforms maybe they have a licensing platform so it's all ready to go it's all to spec and then of course we can monetize it for them too through you know through uh getty images the third thing that we do is you know we realize that talking through you know talking to so many media companies about these different models I would always say, hey, how would you like to create a new stream of revenue from your existing assets? And I'm just talking the B-roll, not controversial. The lawyers won't care about this stuff. It's just the B-roll. Of course, BizDev would say, absolutely. You know, where do we sign? And then I would ask, okay, well, you know, where is your footage? And then we found out that there's this whole problem, that there's a ton of footage out there um, growing every day. 
that really is not being, uh, you know, is not being tagged correctly. Um, and I'm not talking about just the, you know, the old film and videotapes that need to be digitized, but also new footage coming in. Um, you know, it can it be searched? Is do you have the right metadata? Do you have the right title, description, and keywords so that an end user, even within your news organization or media organization, can actually find what what they need? And the answer most of the times is no. So we also have this cataloging and tagging service to um, to to enable organizations to actually access their own footage. And of course, you know, that boosts usage so they can use it. It saves money. They can create more with it. And then, of course, um, they can create new streams of uh, revenue from that. I am fascinated with that because from the time I migrated to Final Cut 10 plus years ago, 10, 11 mm -hmm. years ago, I was having to deal more and more with keywords, particularly range-based keywords as the access yeah. to finding what I was looking for. And I realized that I needed strategies to do that. Can you talk a little bit about how Clippin looks at tagging the footage that comes in from everybody? How granular do you get? How wide do you get? What have you learned about how to do that well? Yeah, I mean, good question. So, you know, my background is I started in production and then I moved to post-production. So many years ago, 20, 25 years ago, I was the assistant editor packing up boxes of tapes and writing, you know, on the spine on tape and writing on the, you know, a label on the on the box and, and shipping it off to, you know, storage in the in the salt mines. So I kind of understand like the minimal metadata. That's metadata, you know, it's tagging, it's uh titling its captions but that's most of you know most tapes kind of have that level so you might know roughly the title of of um, the tape you might know roughly what the shoot was about but you have to think of what the end user how does an end user look for footage and who is an end user so you really have to know who is in that seat typically it's an editor it's a producer sometimes producer editor um, and then of course it's someone who might be buying footage for a certain reason and, and how do they look for it? Sometimes it's super specific. I'm looking for a shot of a sunset. Okay. You can, you know, as long as it's tagged as sunset, but maybe someone is looking for, you know, inspiration or spirituality or a certain mood or a certain color. You know, we know editors sometimes they've got a black hole in their timeline. And they need to fill it with something that matches the 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 feel, the tone, um, and and the shot that comes before and the shot that comes after, and that's a pretty complicated um, equation. Sometimes there's movement involved. Sometimes it's color. Um, are there people in it? You know, and on and on. Is it long enough? Do you have do you have handles for the sixty frame dissolve afterwards? So you actually have to tag. Um, footage um, a number of different ways in order for it to to really be found you know searched found um, and used and so we always start you ask about methodology and approach we always start with that end user you know and how would they be looking for it with you know a sensitivity and an expertise in the content itself we are really content people we love content and our our goal is we don't want any footage wasted. Save all footage because you're going to be able to use it um, for something, but make it easy um, to access. Now, if I have footage, I think that would be um, useful for clipping and I send it in. Do I have to tag things ahead of time or do you have a crew there that that takes the footage and applies maybe more appropriate metadata tags to it from your experience? 
Yeah, so basically with all our models, um, we've we've developed this dashboard that's really intuitive. Um, it's a it's a three-step wizard, basically. First step would be um, drag your files, video files of a similar story or event. Okay, that's kind of starting with that similar story or event. The second step would be, do you have any releases? Do you have a talent release? Do you have a property release? You know, if it's that type of production. Um, for news, of course, there aren't going to be releases. But for creative footage or commercial footage, there might be. And we encourage people in those cases to get releases. Um, and then the third step is, tell us what it is. We need to know. Somebody needs to input that basic information. Sometimes we can get that through an API. If you're, you know, if your company already has a MAM, if you have spreadsheets and stuff like that, we we might be able to get it, um, you know, through through kind of technical means. More often, um, especially with news, um, it's just minimal information. What's the title? You know, apple picking <laughs> or surfing. You know, people surfing. What's the description? Surfers on a beach, such and such place, and you know, date, date, time, location. And then what's really important is, um, you know, because we're not robots um, and the people who are shooting this footage aren't robots and the people who are, you know, who are going to be buying it aren't. So we, it's really important to be sensitive to, you know, to understanding that person who's uploading um, and give them the ability to communicate with us directly. So there's a field that basically says, no, it's anything else we should know. Sometimes they say, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, you know, I didn't have a tripod with me. The footage is really shaky or I couldn't shoot a lot of footage. We got kicked out of the location or something like that. Um, if you were a videographer handing off the camera card to an editor, what would you say to them? And, um, this is a really powerful moment because of course, when the footage gets uploaded, then the editor is looking at what the summary is. They get a sense of what this is. Um, if there's anything specific, um, that they can't know. Um, by looking at the footage, we have, you know, we've asked the uploader, we've trained the uploader to to tell us that in the description or the notes. But then they also get a sense of, okay, what was in the shooter's mind when they were shooting? Because especially with news, we encourage them to get a lot of coverage, wides, mediums, and tights from different locations. This makes our job easier, but it's also more footage. It's, you know, it's better quality, following best practices. And the last thing that the editor does whenever they're editing that for those whatever predetermined uses they are. And they do vary from, you know, company to company. Um, but the last thing that they do is they say something positive um, uh, about the footage to reinforce best practices, like really good footage, you know, excellent framing, and they can customize this too. And if they, if they think that that shooter um, can learn from something, um, then they give them some constructive feedback. Next time, please shoot for 10 seconds. Next time, please don't talk. Next time, you know, use a tripod or a monopod, try and steady yourself. Of course, they wouldn't give that feedback if you said, hey, sorry, I didn't have my tripod with me. You know, it's shaky. They would understand that. But so, you know, in, in a couple really simple steps, it doesn't take any more time or, you know, money. It doesn't really cost anything. Um, but we tap into those really valuable moments to give feedback to the videographer and that actually improves them. And this happens in the stock footage model that I described. It happens in also in the news model um, for shooters. And that's something our clients love because we we can take a we can take a good shooter um, and make them really great. And we can take a bad shooter and make them really great. And it's it's that feedback loop that's that's really important. 
Can we talk about quality for a little bit in this respect? Everybody yeah. knows that there's a ton of people out there shooting. In the old days, the news shooters were all using beta cams or shoulder mounted cameras. But boy, the landscape has certainly changed about that. Uh, are there minimum requirements or maximum requirements? What's happening with all the people who are now uh, capturing useful information on phones and things like that? Yeah. Where does Clippin fit into the quality spectrum? Yeah, so I guess we need to define what quality is, right? And quality means a few different things. And um, there are certain best practices that I think we can all agree on. Um, don't, yeah, don't make it too shaky, right? Okay, um, hang on the subject for long enough so I can see it. And also, somebody who's going to be using it, an editor, needs a certain amount of time. And certainly, if you're distributing this to so a stock footage distributor, they want at least 10 seconds long. So their basic best practices, we can agree on um, that those, those um, impact the quality. Um, I would also say, um, you know, resolution is something that's important. It's more and more important. We were, uh, you know, one of the first companies distributing, you know, 4K. There's still a limit at, you know, the stock footage sites um, about what, you know, the highest resolution they can take. Of course, people can shoot 8K, 16K and stuff like that. They don't, they don't accept that. They take maximum 4K. But again, 4K um, might increase the uh, the possibility for usage and sales um, because someone who's only looking for, let's say, they're they're going to edit something just for for digital or mobile, um, they only need 720 or they need 1080 something like that. Well, okay, they can be a buyer, but somebody who's looking for 4K, well, they can be a buyer as well. So you actually expand your potential buying audience by shooting 4K. But then there's the other aspect of quality. And I think of this as beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And this is what really, really changed for me um, when, after I started clipping, because I, again, I come from production background, I shoot, I edit, I know how to make videos. I know what's a good shot, right? And, and this is what I thought. Um, you know, we could all take a look at the most beautiful sunset in the world or the most highly produced shot or a really rare shot or something like that. And we can say, this is amazing. Like, this is a great shot. This is the best shot anyone's shot. So the quality is really high. When it comes to stock footage, none of that matters at all. Um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And you have to think again about that editor or that producer, the person who is looking for something and they want to buy a certain type of footage. And there are all those different things that are going through their head and the timeline that they're thinking about. They're not thinking of, is it the most beautiful shot? They're not thinking, is it really rare or the production value is incredible? Most of the time, they're not thinking about any of this stuff. They're just thinking, does it work? Or is this a shot that I'm looking for? So I we learned this at, when we started selling uh, you know, a lot of clips for people and thinking, you know, footage would come in and we'd be like, whoa, this is this is gonna sell a ton. Wouldn't sell at all. Our our top selling clip for years was a shot, a close-up shot of someone tying their dirty work boots. <laughs> like that. So, you know, I mean, really that's really surprising, right? You yeah, know? I wouldn't have expected that to be a big yeah. ask out there. But now that I think about it for a moment, you know, yeah. There's a lot of money in dirty work boots. So yeah, they made, I don't know if it was thousands, but the, you know, that, the person who shot that um, made a ton of money. And there, there are a lot of stories like that. Of course, some of the shots that we think will sell really well, they do. But that was a real, you know, that, that took me a while to really wrap my head around. And what we've done, we've developed a methodology around that. Because if you know that you can make money, if you're a videographer, you know you can make money 
in the stock footage market. How do you actually pick up your, you know, you have a day off. How do you actually pick up your camera and go out shooting, you know, with confidence that that's going to sell? Like that's a, that's a tough thing. So we've basically turned it into a numbers game. We've turned it into, we call it quantity, quality, and variety and quantity. The more you shoot, it's just going to increase the the chances that you're going to sell. It's an, it's purely a numbers game quality. Of course, we've talked about best practices, beauties in the eye of the beholder. And then variety is the other thing. If you shoot nothing but surf videos, that may limit, you know, that may limit the pool of people who are looking for surf videos. So we give people ideas of other, other categories to shoot because we know that you may shoot 50 things that come to you and then you can't think of anything else. So we actually give them, you know, ideas of things that are actually, you know, people are looking for just general, you know, general categories. And if you stick to that quantity, quality, and variety, we found over the years, you know, we're almost 10 years now that people start making money. Um, and, and so it's really, it's really sticking to kind of that numbers-based methodology. Interesting. You know, I just have, I have a project in house right now. That's real interesting to me because it's a natural history museum in the local area. And I just got all of their footage and it covers years. And to me, the interesting thing is their field people started out on larger cameras, but now they're migrating. And most of those field scientists that are out doing digs and things like that are capturing a lot of really interesting footage just on their phones. Can you yeah. talk to me about what's what you see happening and whether there's a place for that kind of footage in these stock? libraries coming up yeah I'm, I'm glad you asked that and this is you know this is my iphone this is an iphone pro max uh 13 i've been shooting professionally on this for two years now and i'll tell you a story where you know and i i went i was almost from one day to the next i did a 180 because people would ask me can i shoot on mobile phones and i would see how people would shoot you know, whether horizontally or vertically, and it would be really shaky and they, they just didn't have the training. So I, I would say, no, it's not, it's not there yet. But then when, then one day it was, the quality was there. If you knew what you're doing, you still need to, you know, some basic, basic training. But I was, uh, I, I did a bunch of tests and I was sending footage to my clients, showing them like, this is, this was shot on a phone and it would blow their minds. They'd be like, wow, that's incredible. I, I had no idea that it could shoot this quality. Um, and lead, this is leading up to the election in 2020. And um, my clients weren't into the idea of shooting a mobile. They were, you know, broadcast traditionally as opposed to change like that, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, including, you know, some good ones, but people were just prejudiced against mobile footage. Um, that Saturday after the election, um, a lot of our clients had photographers out there covering the different rallies on that Saturday when um, Biden was announced as the winner. At that point, of course, they wanted footage. They wanted video footage from all this. So we got a ton of footage shot on DSLRs that was super shaky um, because they didn't have stabilization and stuff like that. And so that was the first moment I said, you know, we could have shot. We could have had told them to shoot on mobile and it would have been much better quality than this, just on the shakiness alone. But on January 6th, um, I did a, uh, I basically did a primer for um, a bunch of photographers slash videographers prepping them for the rally that turned into, you know, January 6th in, insurrection. Um, just best practices and shooting video and how to upload. And I said, pick, you know, look on the map, see where the local Starbucks is, because you're going to have to get to a Wi-Fi. You might have to get to a Wi-Fi hotspot um, to actually upload the footage to us. Um, 
And when I saw the barricades being pushed over, um, I picked up the phone. I called my clients. I said, tell everybody to start shooting on their mobile devices. And that's what they did. They ended up thanking me later um, because we got a ton of footage out um, because of that. First of all, there was a safety issue for anybody with a big camera who looked like, you know, a journalist or the press. They were beating people up. Um, they were stabbing people um, and, you know, they were destroying uh, equipment. So that was kind of the game changer for my clients. They realized, okay, first of all, they saw the footage and the footage was great. We broke, we broke the story. This footage is going to be looked at, hopefully, for hundreds of years, you know. Let's preserve it. But this is historic footage. And so that really changed their thinking. And I've been involved with, uh, in, globally, it's called Mojo, mobile journalism. Um, and it's been around for a long time. It's been around for 10 years. So there's some people who've been doing this a long time. I've recently hopped on the the bandwagon. Um, and and so I'm a big, I'm a huge fan. I, I just got back from um, a trip to Kiev um, last week where I was supplying, um, journalists, you know, video journalists. Um, I brought a bunch of drones over and on other gear, it was all mobile, um, gear essentially. Um, so I supplied them, I trained them and I shot a ton of footage and you would never know, um, that this was just shot on a mobile device. It's just video, you know? Yeah. That's the bottom line. It, it looks good, tells the story and it, it's better to have that you can get high quality footage without taking those large rigs around just makes it potentially easier to get so much more stuff. That's great. We got a ton of questions uh, coming up here and I'm going to do the Q and a here with you. Sure. So our first one uh, comes from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. And Chad says, what are the top three mistakes people make when submitting their work to Clippin? Top three mistakes. Um, you haven't shot long enough. So, um, as a shooter, when I shoot, if I'm, I, I'm totally focused, I love shooting. Um, I love shooting B-roll. Um, that's kind of my thing, but I'm so focused on what's happening. And if something really exciting happens, I know it and you lose track of time. So you might think, oh, I've been, I shot for like 30 seconds. And then you go back and look at it and it's like two or three seconds. And, and I, you know, I pan from here to there and then there's nothing like it's, it's almost unusable. So I always tell people count to 10 Mississippi in your head. You have to, if you're on a subject, start counting and you have to do it. And, and I still do it to this day. I don't think it ever becomes really intuitive because of this weird time warp that happens. So start counting. And before you pan to somebody else, um, you know, have a good five seconds, pan to that other person, count to five again. And then you've got a couple different shots. You've got a few different pieces there. So I'd say, you know, having the footage long enough is, is probably the, you know, the first thing. Um, second thing is coverage. Um, give people options, you know, whatever you may be shooting wides, mediums, and tights from different locations. Um, you know, I, I always try to plant my feet, um, or tripod or wherever it is, uh, 12 different places and do a wide medium and tight there. That's 36 shots, basically, maybe even more if I'm panning or something like that. That's a ton of footage. And if you've ever edited, you know, we have, we have this training video called think like, think like an editor, shoot, shoot like an editor. Um, because if you've ever edited, you realize you'll never complain about having too much B-roll really. It's just the opposite. You almost, you almost always never have enough. So if you if you shoot the most boring thing in the world, let's say me sitting here 
could you cover this in a way where you actually have 12 different, you know, places and wide mediums and tights? Absolutely. And you have to start thinking about it that way. You have to start getting creative. Um, and then I guess the third mistake is, um, especially news, um, not giving, not giving real editorial, um, captions. So, um, news specification and, and I, you know, this is something that we, um, constantly remind people it gets better and better, but it's probably the, our, the number one pet peeve, um, when news or editorial contributors, um, upload to us and just knowing that when this goes to a stock footage site, you need to know not only what are we looking at, like, what's the story, right? You need a headline. Okay. What's a story you need to say what's happening in the shot. But then the second sentence that you need in the description is why is this news? Why is this news? What's the context, you know, of this? I can shoot tanks in the square in, in Kiev. Okay, tanks in the square in Kiev. What's the context? You know, we're approaching the first anniversary of the, you know, the war when Russia invaded, something like that. Or the war has been ongoing since February 24th, blah, blah, blah. You have to give a context. And, you know, the more... Uh, the more you information like that, um, that you give to clip in the less we have to guess, the less we have to do, which means that we can process it faster and we can start putting that time, um, towards other things, which boost quality, you know, boost quality and speed to market. That's especially important with news. Great. Let's check the next question out. It comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And uh, Roscoe says, Office Hours is big on AI. How is AI used to manage the media in your library? Or is it? Yeah. So AI is, you know, it's one of those things like mobile video. I, you know, I've been saying now it's not there yet. And it's not there yet. One day I'm just going to say, yeah, it's, oh, you know, it's there. Well, it, it, it pretty much is there right now, but it, it is a tool to assist our curators and taggers um, with uh, with tagging and keywording and things like that. Um, it, it is becoming a very good tool for that. So I think we're going to start um, leaning on that more and more. Um, but the thing with AI is um, to process to process footage. Let's say you have a library of 2 million clips. How do you actually run that through an AI system and with the different AI tags um, without getting too much. You know, you can do object recognition and it'll tag every single thing in the frame. That's too much information, you know? So um, it's finding that balance of, of really tuning the machine so that um, you get just as much information as you need. As I described before, you need to be able to search stuff a few different ways. But if there's too much metadata, it's it's almost as useless as having no metadata because you're going to get results back for for everything. Um, so I would say, you know, with AI, the opportunity for a company like Clippin is knowing how to use AI, knowing how to get two million clips through the AI, you know, to run it, actually, to run it through it and, and, you know, to really manage the media and manage the project and, and get the, get the tagging back to, let's say a client ma'am or wherever, wherever you're storing the footage so that it's usable to you. And of course, usable to us as well. 
Yeah, that's a really fascinating topic. I was just thinking the other day about whether or not, you know, we have things like mid-journey for stills. Will we ever get to the point where an AI system can create some length of footage, give me a 10-second clip in the same kind of style and uh, just creativity of the AI machines that will solve a need? Uh, any mean, thoughts on the long range? You mean generating, generating, yeah, generating some kind of uh, footage. Maybe it won't be footage in terms of you know we always think of footage as something from the real world. But if Midjourney can take some real portraits and then create something in the style of something else from that, you mm -hmm. just wonder: Will there ever be a technology that will be able to do that in in contiguous footage? Uh, yes, absolutely. I see John nodding his head. I agree with you. Yeah, I think we're almost there if not you know there um you know video is a lot more difficult than than stills because there's movement and there's intent and things like that that you don't necessarily have um in in a still you know uh, somebody throwing a ball you know the machine knowing that the ball is moving forward for a reason and, and and how it acts and stuff like that so it's a lot more complicated but you can see the leaps and bounds we've made in just a, a few years so um yeah i'm confident that the quality of that will will be there just just right now it's a huge discussion in the um in the stills stock you know stock world um about you know well first of all these a these ai uh, platforms were mining all these you know actual stills that people own to train the machine and you know where's the compensation for that that's never going to happen there'll be lawsuits and then they'll never you know never be compensated for we that. were talking about that yesterday there's one right now out of san francisco that yeah, yeah that's big yeah um you know but then the next thing is you know creating a shot you know, putting in exactly what you want a certain type of person and then you get this shot that you get, is actually usable um you know there's there's a little bit of that uncanny valley still there where you kind of know you know like they've got 14 fingers and stuff like that that's gonna you know that's gonna be cleared up pretty quick you know yeah. it's the, the technology is amazing so I, I think you know it will be it will be just another tool i mean it is another tool people will be really excited about it it'll be really trendy um, but, you know, actual footage um, is, well, there will always be a place for, you know, real footage, real shot footage. Um, and especially with news, I mean, this is a totally, sorry, I'm, uh, Roscoe, I'm going on tangents here. Um, I think I answered that question. I was going to, I was going to say that there's a, there's another um, big issue with video um, that is, you know, provenance. Um, I talk a lot about Ukraine just because it's, you know, it's a, it's a big story right now, but also for, you know, for video, I don't know the exact statistic, but I'm going to make one up and it's probably not too far off, but every day there's more video shot of the Ukrainian war, um, than, than all other wars combined, right? It's like something like that. It's maybe it's every week, but it's something like that. There's so much video coming out. And in the early days of the war, there were a lot of deep fakes or, or a lot of misleading um, footage. So um, media organizations spent a lot of money trying to verify this geolocation and stuff like that. So provenance for stills and for video is a really, really big thing. And there's uh, there's something called the, uh, um, the Content Authenticity Initiative, which is... Um, from Adobe and the, a lot of, you know, all the top media companies are signing on board and including um, Clipin, but that's really to bake in certain um, standards and protocols and even tools so that when you shoot an image and eventually it's going to be video as well, 
and then that gets edited and then it gets cropped and then it gets flipped and then it gets posted that when when you finally click on the LA Times for this video or for this still, there's a little eye on the upper upper corner and that gives you all the information so you know who shot it, when, where, and every every step of the way through editing to you know to where it got to you. So that's a type of tool that um, that media companies are uh, you know planning to bake into their products and workflows so that people will have more confidence in the footage that they're looking at. You know, and this is preparing us for that, you know, for the day when, um, you know, that uncanny value is removed and we won't be able to tell the difference between an AI generated um, image or video from something that's actually shot. That's very cool. Embedded provenance of a sort. Chris Fenwick has a thought here. Yeah. Chris. Yeah. Mick, first of all, check your email. I sent you a message uh, through the, the message in the in your website thing. Uh, oh, cool. Second of, second of all, we're already to the point where we're making images that can't be distinguished from reality, but only in the thumbnails. I, I can't tell you this mm. multiple times. I've tried to buy a, a clip on a stock stock uh, footage uh, library. I've literally bought it. And I was like, oh, that's animated. Uh, again. <laughs> um, the thumbnail was pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm with you on the the, the phone thing. Uh, I've been saying for at least a decade now that uh, the iPhone was going to be the greatest camera ever invented. And I think it is. I really do think it is. And I'll tell you the thing that fascinates me the most. And the first time I saw this, uh, a little bit of brain matter splattered all over the room. Um, not only can I search my photos library using words yeah uh ostensibly keywords that i did not attach to a photo yeah like for example if i search for dog i'm going to find a bunch of pictures of my of my wife's dogs but the one that blew me away was at one time i i was showing it to somebody and i was like wait a second that's a video mm-hmm. and i opened up the video and i hit play and i was like wow there's no dog in this sure enough few seconds into it dog runs through the frame wow yeah it's not looking at the the thumbnail of it it's looking at the whole video and scanning the whole thing yeah wow it's totally amazing and i think that when you can uh somehow capture that kind of technology for your tagging business uh that's that's going to be huge because you're right Mm -hmm. Uh, as an editor i mean i've been editing for decades and the the number one curse of every editor is can i find not do I have that shot, but I've seen that shot. Yeah. And I can't find it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so to be able to search something as smart as my iPhone does, mm-hmm. the iPhone is the best camera. It will go down as the best camera ever made. I don't care all about all the Aries and 6K this <laughs> and whatever. The iPhone is the best camera ever made, period. <laughs> John Preto had a thought. John? Hey, Mick, thanks for coming on and sharing with us. I appreciate it. I'm a, I'm a student of AI. I've been watching it for a long time and uh, and waiting for Adobe to to launch their their stuff. I'm, I'm starting to see guys take mid-journey uh, or stable diffusion now and do tweening with characters. So they, they're creating two characters and they're tweening between to create video. But but we're, we're hearing the rumors that... Uh, Generative stuff's going to show up in Photoshop, Illustrator, After yeah. Effects, and, and Premiere. And so you're going to be able to, to animate directly in there. 3D, video, audio, and, and of course, already 
still images. So it's exciting stuff. Yeah. Yep. All right. We've got way more questions than I expected, and they're coming in hard and fast. So let's get through some of them. Tommy Shantz in St. Paul says, what format is needed? Is H.264 good enough? Um, yes, it is. A lot of, uh, a lot of um, our videographers, um, again, not, not just the sock footage, but the news um, photographers, um, shoot H.264. Um, that's fine. H.264, H.265. Um, you know, if you can shoot ProRes, um, that would be great, but that's a big calculation. And sometimes it's really diminishing returns. Um, those are huge files and it's may not be practical for you to shoot and it, it may not matter. So H264 is, is perfectly fine now. Yeah. Alton Christensen's up next from New York City, and Alton says, I shoot time-lapse in RAW, which has many color grading options. Is there an option to customize the color treatment of these sorts of source material for a client, and how might that work in your environment? Yeah, so with RAW, um, we so think of it this way. Um, as you're searching through the stock footage site, and you see that thumbnail, right? Um you may you may be a total pro you may be a professional editor or color grader or producer or whatever you may even though you're a professional um there's something about seeing um ungraded footage where you just kind of skip over it so we we do basic grading so that it's pleasing to the eye and that a potential buyer would look at that footage, know what it is, not be prejudiced against it because it's ungraded, um, but then think, oh, I can do something with this. So if you shoot raw, that's fine. We would take that and we would basically put a basic grade on it. Um, just again, minimal standards, just so it looks good to, to our eye. And we know that someone looking over it will, will know that, um, that they'll be able to do something to it. Sometimes they do request the actual raw files and we're able to provide that. You say basic grading. I also saw as I was reading through some of the material about you that there's transcoding built in. So if you upload something that people who are looking for footage can get transcodes and different, different encodings. Yeah. So, you know, we always start with the, who's the end user, you know, where's this going? Um, you know, for kind of our enterprise news, um, business, which is really just, you know, virtual post-production. Um, we, we take a look at, you know, what format do they want it in? You know, one client wants MXF files, uh, for whatever reason, that's what they take. Okay. Um, that's what we, you know, we give them, we'll master it certain, you know, certain format, certain resolution we'll give them whatever spec they want but at the same time we'll send maybe the prores 422 hq to getty images um from getty you know if somebody wants to license that footage then that then getty basically handles the transcoding but um you know one of the reasons that we're in the cloud and we went to the cloud you know super early is because we can you know we can drop something essentially into you know a watch folder um in aws elemental and it spits out the other side in whatever flavor and format we want immediately without us having to invest in extra hardware it's super fast and the quality is you know excellent cool next question from eric billings in washington dc what's your favorite stabilizing gimbal for the iphone 
Oh man. Okay. So I mean, you know, the DJI, um, I, they keep changing the name. So it was an Osmo and then it was an OM. I don't know what the latest one is. I think it's an uh, Osmo six and the last one was OM five, but basically, and that's actually one of the things I brought over to Ukraine to give to their, uh, you know, to give to journalists there. Um, I really like that. Um, though the, the last version, the version five wasn't so great for the pro max, um, weight for some reason. Um, but the new one they have, they have addressed, addressed that. Um, yeah, I would go, I would go for DJI for, for a phone. Um, the other reason is, um, with those, the, the clip that actually holds the device to the handheld gimbal, you can buy one with little lights on it, which is actually great for if you're a journalist and you're doing, or and anybody who's basically doing a selfie walking down the street, it's actually a little light on your face too. They're 150 bucks. I'm not a salesman for DJI, but they're 150 bucks from B and H, you know, I mean, super cheap. It comes it actually extends. You can flip it upside down and chase your dog around the yard and stuff like that. I've been using those for years and I absolutely love them. Great. Next question comes from Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, do you look at videos and suggest the creator, uh, hey, that could work as vertical video and how much vertical video is being created? We normally stay away from religion on this show, but we're going to go there now. Oh, vertical man. Video. Well, I'll crack an old, I'm sure this joke is really old and tired at this point, but you know, how do you, how do you prove that you're old? <laughs> right? Everybody's shooting like this these days everybody's shooting like this and i'm come on you know i've been shooting horizontally for so long that um it's it's a little hard for me to wrap my head around vertical unless it's specific for social but so, social is most of what the consumption is these days and are you really, seeing a need in stock for vertical um, do, do there people is, ask for it? there is more and more yeah there is more and more um yeah so it's kind of it's kind of its own genre, but it shouldn't it really shouldn't be because it's it's everywhere. So I, I think I think part of it is that the people who shoot vertically, maybe they're not big consumers of stock footage. It's a different type of, you know, it's a different type of footage. So maybe they're not consuming it that much. But but it is it is there. There is there is a need for it. I would say, um, I mean, I shot something recently that that was going to be was going to go out two different ways one was kind of like a broadcast format so it was traditional you know horizontal but then they also wanted to do social stuff so you know it's almost going back to the days of having to put tape on the viewfinder <laughs> you know give and, yourself a and new shoot, framing guide and shoot yeah. it both ways and know to keep them in the middle and know that in post-production you're going to have to flip it shoot in 4k that gives you more options you know but but i would think of you know, where, where is this going to be airing or where are you going to be distributing it? And let that be, let that be your guide. I actually had a project where a client asked me for the footage in both things. So I tried it with a dual bracket mounting one form horizontally and one yeah. form vertically. And it was a weird mental exercise to keep looking back and forth and trying to figure out what's my framing supposed to be. You know, if this shot starts to the left and I'm trying to get a good shot. So pre-roll beforehand and then the move going back and forth between a vertical framing and a horizontal framing to execute a move and end and stay on it was a mental process. Yeah. You know, there, there's some pretty cool things. They're pretty cool. Um, you know, the Mojo apps, um, for, uh, you know, for, uh, for video one, you know, the leading camera app is uh filmic pro, which is just, um, incredible. That's what I was shooting 
mostly in in Ukraine. Um, there there are there are some apps that that do things like shoot two shots at the same time. So on a you know on a camera with three different lenses, it'll shoot a wide and a close up at the same time. So you'll actually get those two files. Um, I I've been thinking recently. If anybody wants to start a new business with me, a new app of of shooting two files, but like horizontal and vertical at the same time. I don't even know if that's possible, but I've been thinking like, could you do that from the same lens on a mobile device? Because that's a type of thing where you wouldn't have to have two cameras. You wouldn't have to worry about it really. Um, and, and you would have, you know, you'd have both files from, from a single shot, a single device. Interesting to think about as we move forward. Next question comes from Alton Christensen in New York City, and he says, how are you dealing with the various delivery formats, HDR, HLG, 60 frame per second, 120 frame per second, 4K, 8K? Do I deliver variations on each clip, or is that an automated process? And a <laughs> 1080p of a 4K clip, maybe? 1080p, 4K clip. Okay. Um so again, think of the end user, you know, the potential end user. If you're shooting just for stock footage, um, you know, I, I like shooting, you know, 4K 30p is really, really safe. You want to do 4K 60p, that's that's fine. Um, but you know, 4K 30p is fine unless you want to do, you know, essentially like a slow-mo type, you know, effect, which is people people shoot that way. Um you know, when you upload, you can you can give us an idea of like why you shot it a certain way. Like I was shooting this for slow mo or something like that, because it's not always obvious. So people shoot sixty p for you know like regular speed, and but if you were thinking having it a little slowed down, then then we'll know that, and then we'll you know we'll edit that accordingly. There's no right or wrong um, answer for any of those formats you said, except you know if you can shoot in four K. Um, don't shoot it in 1080 because you are broadening um, your audience by shooting 4K. In many instances, these stock footage distributors, they actually charge more for 4K. Not all of them do, um, but they charge more for 4K and it's it's a you know huge demand. So if you've only shot in 1080, then you're losing your 4K audience. If you shoot in 4K, you got a 4K audience, maybe you've got a premium for that footage and you still have your 1080 audience and you know longevity too you know that what is the shelf life of these clips um depending on the subject matter you know if there's any fashion involved you know maybe you got five six years or something like that um unless someone wants kind of an archival type shot but you know it's shorter but if it's something that that um is is more timeless the higher resolution is actually important because people are trending towards higher and higher resolutions. And eventually when, if, and when 8k, um, you know, is really the standard, well, then they can still use 4k, but you know, 1080 is going to look terrible. So you're just not going to, you know, you're not going to have buyers for that. You know, the idea with stock footage, if we're talking about that as a business, um, think of it as an annuity you're building you know, you're building a pile of footage that's that should kick off an annuity year after year after year. Once you build that critical mass, you got to keep feeding it. But that's that's the idea of stock footage that you want you want it up there. You only have to process it once, and it stays. You know, it stays on these on these sites um, forever, basically, and with with potential buyers. 
Yeah, I had a consultant once talk to me about pigs, passive income generators. We did the work once and it just keeps yeah. paying you over and over and over again. Next question comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe says, what clients other than news benefit most from a shortened time to market? Um, I think news is the primary one. You know, speed to market is really, really, really important for news. But I'm kind of a workflow. I'm obsessed with friction points and workflows. Like that's that's my thing. Like everything I do from production through post-production and distribution. As an editor, I don't like looking for footage. My happy place is actually getting to the point where I'm editing. And since there are humans involved in the workflow, we're very, very conscious of keeping people in their happy spots and keeping, um, you know, keeping the technology out of the way. So while, you know, speed to market might not be the most important thing for, you know, some, some commercial stock footage um, clip that you shot, the efficiency of speed to market is really, really important for you, but all, you know, also for us, because that, that helps you just just focus on shooting what you love, shooting what you want to focus, you know, what you want to do. And for us, it the more efficient we are, um, it's we can do it faster, we can do it for lower cost, and actually we can add quality to other things that are really, really important. Speaking of the choir with me, the very first thing I have clients doing on that natural history project I'm talking to you about, the first three days that we went through the footage, all we did was reject. We just went in Final Cut and rejected huge swaths. Yeah. Everything that was talking head, we rejected because we're looking for B-roll for the client yeah. forever. And just getting rid of junk was the most efficient thing we could do. And yeah. now we're keywording the what's left. It's made a yep. big difference. Yeah, it's Oop. good to do that pass, that first pass, uh, yeah. just so you can focus. Focus is what it's all about. Uh, next question comes from Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. And he says, any calls for LiDAR-created content for gaming or the metaverse? Um, not that I know of. Um, I, I haven't, uh, you know, that, that kind of falls into the 360 category where, um, in my experience, people who are using that footage typically just shoot it themselves. It's, it's so super specific that may change, but I haven't heard any demands for that. Not yet. Are there changes in, you have a big view of the industry. Are there changes with what people are asking for or searching for within your system that you've been able to identify? Is there a kind of footage they're more interested in right now? Yeah, there's stylistic, um, stylistic differences um, for, for sure. You know, in the old days, stock footage was kind of a dirty word. You know, I, I spent years in agencies and you know, you'd go to stock footage if you needed like a military plane or something like that. Or if you didn't have a big budget, you're putting together a sizzle video or something like that. I mean, picture the two people standing awkwardly at the, at the water cooler in an office, you know, that, that kind of is what stock footage had the reputation of that. Um, we started clipping, um, when DSLRs were really coming up, that was the game changer, um, in the industry. And I looked I looked around and saw the types of footage and it was kind of stale type footage. Um, um, because of DSLRs, I think the footage has become, um, you know, not only better in some ways or more cinematic, um, 
but um, a lot more a lot more dynamic. And I think that's continuing with with mobile. So I think st- the style of shooting is the thing that has changed the most. Yeah, that that comports with what I've seen, which is in the beginning when shooters were just the news folks, they all shot like news folks. But then we saw more different kinds of things showing up on YouTube and everywhere else. And it seemed like it freed people to really be more artistic in their approach to executing shots. And so sometimes I look at stock libraries now and I go, well, that really is pretty. That's really well done. That is way elevated beyond what I saw in my first five or 10 years in the business. So, yeah, artistic and also intimate. I think it can be a little more intimate. Ah. And also, another thing, this goes back to, um, you know, mobile video, but access. And I'm not talking about sneaking in someplace and, you know, shooting where you shouldn't be shooting, but everybody has their phones up. Everybody's shooting at all times. So we're not on guard when we see that. And I think, um, it, it, there, there is an, it, it enables you to get access, but there's also a certain um, intimacy um, there that you can achieve with a mobile device that you can't with a big rig that's a little more in, intimidating um, for people. Yeah, actually, I have an old thing that I, I was thinking about metadata when I was talking to Phil Hodges, a friend of mine who was really steeped in that metadata and taught me a lot and I know about it. And in, in just thinking about it, I thought, yeah, there's going to be a concert somewhere where something weird happens and there's going to be a hundred or yeah. 200 or 800 video clips come out of that. And without metadata and the understanding of how to deploy it and leverage it for success, how are you going to even know what your good shots are out of 800 submissions from an event? So well, this is a really good point. And, and what um, concerns me right now, so I'm on, I'm on a mission, like I say, I mean, I want every every clip, every frame saved and and searchable and and used. I mean, I love, I absolutely love footage. And, you know, I hear the stories of, um, you know, these local news affiliates um, just dumping um, truckloads of of their tapes and destroying them. And, you know, we know from the past year, I don't know if you've heard this story in Minneapolis, the local station saved their footage and they digitized it and they're going through it. Now, if when when a news organization or a media company does that, they get to tell history. You know, they get to say what history is. If you dump it, you don't have that chance. And an archivist was going through the footage, and this is from the '70s, and they saw this little boy on a field trip. You know, the the camera person who was interviewing kids on a field trip, and the little boy looked really familiar. And when he started talking, it confirmed, "Oh, that was Prince. That's 11 year old Prince on a field trip." You know, and there are so many examples and so many moments about that. So I absolutely love, love, love footage and, uh, you know, archival and the new footage. And what concerns me is, um, you know, workflows right now where there is footage being captured and maybe it's uploaded to YouTube, maybe it's uploaded to TikTok or Twitter and it gets compressed. So it's shot nice, high resolution, nice and clear. You can see it on your phone at least, but then it gets compressed and then it gets reposted and recompressed. And so we've all seen, you know, on social, especially we've all seen that, that footage that just looks really, really terrible. The reason is it wasn't captured like that. It was just compressed, recompressed and recompressed and recompressed. So where's that source footage? Where's that being stored? Where will that be accessible? Um, And there's so much of it. So that's where, you know, the machines are going to help us. 
but I think we have to, you know, especially since the move from tape to digital, um, that's really happened the last, you know, 10, 12 years with, you know, the, on the highest levels, um, there's a mountain of footage and where is it and, and how are we going to preserve it? How are we going to make it accessible and, and, and be able to pass it on? That's, that's a big issue right now. Big issue. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael here. And Douglas says, you mentioned supporting raw red camera files as the high watermark. What camera would you suggest as an entry-level camera for professionals who want to start in the industry? Um, I mean, there's so many. Um, and every day I'll give you, you know, a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the big one a decade ago was you know the canon 5d that was kind of the game changer um, changed canon, my entire career that 5d mark ii switched my entire that's thinking. that's what yeah that was exactly it and and again i'm not i mean in some ways we've been real cutting edge or bleeding edge with clip and really pushing the envelope on what we can do in aws and the platform and stuff like that when we were building our platform we went to aws and said okay this is what we're gonna do we want to edit in the cloud we want to ma'am in the cloud we want to do all this stuff and they said, we can't do that yet. We're not there yet. And we did it. We, you know, we pushed it. But when it comes to, you know, tools of the trade, I am super conservative. I take forever just because I, you know, I've seen the promises of technology and had my heart broken so many times that I usually kind of like, okay, let's wait to see. So it took me a couple of years to really convert to DSLRs. And once I did, of course, I was all in and I built this business, you know, around it. Um, but anyway, you know, Sony is excellent. Um, Panasonic, um, uh, Canon still, you know, the cool thing about, you know, I still refer to them as DSLRs, but they're not even SLRs anymore. You know, they call them mirrorless cameras, which sounds like, you know, horseless carriages, but they're mirrorless. The, the cool thing about the new cameras is that, um, you know, without that mirror, you can do things like autofocus on video, tracking, fa facial recognition in the sense that it knows that their face is on camera. So to keep those in focus and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I've had my eye on the FX, the, the Sony FX30, which is their uh, Super 35 sensor camera, which is uh, just came out in the past on six months. That's what I'm looking at right now. Um, but look at the you know look at the body, look at what your price point is, and and get decent lenses that operate in low light. Absolutely, Mick Reed. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for bringing uh, into our world Clippin. Uh, I think. Everybody has learned a ton about it. And I think it was just a good philosophical uh, conversation today, too, about where things are going, why they're going to be, what they're going to be. Do you have any last thought you want to leave us with before we switch to our closing credits? Um, just keep shooting. Everybody keep shooting. Count to 10 Mississippi in your head when you're shooting. Get a good 10 seconds for every shot. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so you'll much. Go far. Thank you so much.
Absolutely. Uh, let's see. I've got a few little things to do. And don't forget Thursday today, uh, a little later on, I believe it's Isadora Lab with L. Wilson, Wilson Spiro. Uh, the accessibility, I wanted to mention this, even though it's on Wednesdays, it'll be a week from now, but don't forget there's now an accessibility lab with Laura Thompson that we're doing. So another piece of content that you want to deal with. Uh, I want to thank particularly everybody who has been involved in this show. There are two groups we thank every day, and that's because they're incredibly important to how this runs. This is a participant-driven show. So all of our producers, the people who submitted the questions that we handled today, without you, this is impossible for us to get done. Um, also to the panelists, uh, everybody who came in as a panelist answered the first hour questions. Uh, we wanna say a big thanks to Mick, our guest today, of course. And then the final group is everybody in the back end. There's a tremendous number of people who work the back end every day to make this possible. Uh, we're going to roll the credits for them right now. Pay attention to some of these names. Thank you for joining us for Office Hours today. Hi, Asma. Good to see you.